You're listening to the Instructional Redesign Podcast, stories and conversations about the design of modern learning experiences. I'm Kara North, and today's episode is all about Joe Suarez, e-learning developer, consultant, and family man extraordinaire who I originally met on Twitter after hearing his interview on episode 26 of the Dear Instructional Designer podcast. When I found out Joe was also in the Columbus area, it was a no-brainer to connect. Joe was born with a computer in his hand and brings a vast amount of experience into his e-learning. With his 10 plus years in the field, he has a lot of great war stories to share about his experience. Welcome listeners to part two of our two-part series, Better Know a Host, Joseph Suarez edition. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing great. Honored to be here. And by the way, the computer I was born with was an Atari 800XL. And fun fact, one game I used to play on that, it was a game called Facemaker that was coincidentally programmed by future industry thought leader Clark Quinn. Really? Yep. How cool is that? My first computer, I remember playing Reading Rabbit on it. <laughs> yep. Alpha Zap was another one I used to play. Yes, uh, the good old days. Let's start with your background. How did you get into this instructional design stuff? Well, obviously, I grew up with computers, but I also had a love for art. And I was looking for ways to merge the two into some type of career. And by the late 90s, I was starting to design websites. And that's where I learned both how to code HTML and got my introduction to creative tools like Photoshop and Flash. I went on to get an associate's degree at a local community college to show that I knew my stuff. I learned a few things on the way. But oddly enough, when you're a naive 22-year-old who looks like he's 12, no one is excited to hire you. I floated around to different odd jobs to pay the bills, went back to school, and finally in 2007, I landed a job as a graphic designer, which was really an e-learning development position. So I started working in Lectora, and I created some really interesting stuff along the way, but mostly I just followed orders and kind of waited for work to flow downstream to me. So I had a lot of downtime, and I utilized that to basically in hindsight, put myself through a kind of informal master's program where I became more of a well-rounded e-learning developer and started to get ambitions of being an instructional designer. So I filled in knowledge gaps I had about technical things like cascading style sheets and JavaScript and ActionScript for Flash, which led to understanding of coding principles like object-oriented programming, web standards, the separation of presentation from content, which is something that the e-learning world is still trying to pick up on. I wish they would do it a little sooner. I also watched tons of tutorial videos to become more effective with Adobe tools. And originally, in an effort to be better informed with my e-learning development, I wanted to know more about the role of the instructional designer. So I read up on as much as I could find. So, of course, the ADDIE model, adult learning principles, Kirkpatrick's levels of evaluation, and on and on. Basically, anything that pedagogy, is that how you say it? Ped pedagogy? Pedagogy. Get along yep. a little doggy. And andragogy. But yeah, as long as it wasn't too academic where every other word was something like that, I would follow along. And I subscribed to tons of blogs of various thought leaders, and I read ideas from people like Connie Malama, the e-learning coach, and 
Kathy Moore and her action mapping uh, technique. And all of that basically helped me to not just understand what instructional design traditionally had been, but also what it could be if, how I feel now, if it exhibited a bit more self-awareness and properly adopted technology. Over time, I had some opportunity to flex my new instructional design skills, mostly in the design phase of Addy. And I was able to go to my instructional designer coworkers and say things like, in this course, I think it would be great if we could reinforce the stated learning objectives with an activity on X or, you know, something that was related to it. Or I, I would even catch things like, okay, we have an assessment that mentions this thing that we didn't actually talk about in the course. Can you send the content to me so we can fill that in or things like that? So I was growing in, in both my e-learning competencies and my instructional design skills as well. But by 2012, I was bursting at the seams looking to get out of that role. I, was, I really wanted more challenging work and, and better paying work, to be honest. And that's when I landed a gig at my current organization as a hybrid e-learning developer and instructional designer. And very quickly, my skills got put to the test. I had a lot of support from my manager who knew I was still getting my feet wet in the instructional design world, but I still had some very trying moments. For example, somehow in the previous five years, I'd never actually ran a meeting. Everything I did was behind the scenes. And being an extreme introvert, I never really found that as much of a problem. But soon in my new role, I needed to make phone calls and organize meetings for needs analysis and review meetings and run most of those things solo. Eventually, I got the hang of it, but it was a rough few months starting out. And it was basically like a trial by fire to fill in this huge gap in my professional development. And then after a few years of that, I had a lot of successful projects under my belt, even a few where I was able to go all the way through the entire Addy process from A to E. And a position opened up on my team for a data and analytics training role. The job requirements were just asking for too much. They wanted a strong ID who could do e-learning development, which, as you know, is, is asking a lot in and of itself. But then they also wanted somebody with a background in data and analytics. And I thought about it for a bit and eventually went to my manager and I said, okay, you know you're not going to find somebody with all three of these skill sets. However, you know I can do instructional design. You definitely know I can do e-learning development. And I may not have a background in data analytics, but I've worked with this customer group and with their subject matter experts. I've built the Introduction to Data Analytics course, which was highly praised. So really, I've got two and a half of the three skills you're looking for. Plus, if you put me in the role, my position will be easier to backfill. So despite getting a C in statistics in college, I found myself being the sole training provider for all things data and analytics at a large enterprise. And I got that role by proving myself to be the best available candidate. So I did that for about a year. It was a big stretch for me, but I'm glad I did it because it demonstrated to me just what my limits are. I know I can run meetings. I know I can do instructional design work. But I also know that I'll burn myself out if I spend half my day actively participating in meetings. My introvert battery just doesn't hold that much energy. And I'm also probably not the ideal person to be planning large training initiatives or developing curriculums on a regular basis. Plus, in that year, I only got to develop two courses. And it was also difficult to meet the target deadlines of those courses and still deliver to the quality standard that I hold myself to simply because I had so many other responsibilities. So I was really starting to miss my core skill set as an e-learning developer, and I was really getting concerned that I was 
getting rusty on those skills because I wasn't using them. So when a non-hybrid straight e-learning developer position opened up on another team, I took a big risk and I applied for it. And that's where I am currently. I've been there for a couple years now. I've been very pleased in that role. I get to do what I'm best at, and I get to use my experience as an instructional designer to create more effective learning solutions. Wow, I, I didn't know all of that about you. And there's a couple things I just want to highlight from that. One, good for you for taking advantage of quote unquote downtime, because now that you're further in your career, I bet you miss those days. You probably don't have as much downtime now as you used to, right? Certainly true. Two, I love your commitment to lifelong learning. The fact that you knew you needed to beef up those skills, you took advantage of that time, and then you took advantage of that time, and then you were so strategic in going and essentially making your own position. That's wonderful. So kudos. That's awesome, Joe. So speaking of that, it is no secret that programming and coding is hot right now in instructional design. And no doubt these skills have certainly helped you in your e-learning designer career. Now, I know this about you, that you don't think that everyone needs to know how to code, but I'm going to ask you this, riddle me this, how much of those particular skills do you use in your current work? So I ask you to remember that I'm an e-learning developer first and an instructional designer second, but I'll answer that as I use as much code as my job requires, given my capabilities to do so. If someone asks me to do some back-end server stuff, I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not going to touch it. But on a day-to-day basis, my job could involve something like tweaking some video embed code that, that comes from Vimeo to scale a video responsively for different screen sizes. I could write some hand-coded HTML and CSS for a page in SharePoint, which completely melts people's brains. They think it's all some kind of dark sorcery to add a box of text to the right-hand side of a page. I'm most likely going to create a landing page from scratch soon, and that will probably involve using a framework like Bootstrap, where I get to hand-code some stuff, so that'll be fun. And I'm also excited to be upgrading to Storyline 3 soon with my team, where I plan to switch over our publishing strictly to HTML5 first and only using Flash as a fallback for Internet Explorer. And that's something I've been really anxious to do for at least five years now. And finally, I'll add that I've messed around with generating XAPI statements in the past and sending those off to an LRS, but nothing beyond that currently. I'm kind of taking a wait-and-see approach, um, seeing how that plays out waiting for some more best practices to be formed around it, which is fine because our LMS doesn't currently support it anyway. You answered that like a true e-learning designer slash lawyer. That was a very politically correct way of saying you use it when you have to. But I like the fact that you emphasize that you don't over-design. One peeve of mine is when people feel the need to use technology for technology's sake. It sounds like you're very intentional with when you use the kind of codes and programming that you do. So knowing you, I wouldn't expect anything less than that. Now, one thing that you do is you often advertise yourself as e-learning developer by day, freelance e-learning developer at night. And full confession, every time you say that, 
it totally makes me think of Batman or Darkwing Duck. So how on earth do you dedicate time during the day and evening work and balance the stresses of having a life? Okay. Batman has Alfred, right? And I guess Darkwing Duck has Launchpad McQuack? Yes, Launchpad. Similar to how Batman has his Alfred, I have my wife who supports what I do. Before I take on any side work, I will consult with her just to make sure there's nothing in the upcoming weeks that would be any surprises that aren't listed on the calendar or anything like that. And there's an understanding between us that if I agree to take on work, that I'm going to be tucked away in my office at night and less able to help out around the house and with the kids. Typically, I'll only take on one side job at a time, and I'm always up front with my clients about my availability. So they can't expect me to be on call when I have a nine to five job. And I've definitely had people turn me down for that reason as a result, and I completely understand. But the alternative would be for me to be in over my head and taking calls and answering emails at work, and that's just something I'm not going to do. I'm not going to jeopardize my full-time job for a little bit of side work. Absolutely. I think that's a smart strategy to take. And as I'm starting to kind of take that leap to have a side consulting business, I'm probably going to ask you more questions about it at some point because... I know that you've been pretty successful in balancing the two. I could learn from your perspectives, but I'm sure our listeners could as well. So maybe that could be a future episode. So moving right along, another thing that I know about you is you have the perspective that in e-learning, if it's published in HTML, it's web design slash development. Do you think a lot of instructional designers realize that? And why do you have such a strong opinion about it? At some level, I think anyone who's proficient in an authoring tool has to understand that they're publishing web content, even if they're wrapping that up in a SCORM package that's going into an LMS. But I think most people are naive to just how much the authoring tool is doing for them. There's a lot of decision-making that's going on behind the scenes when we use these tools, and sometimes that decision-making is well thought through by the vendor. Other times, there's assumptions that are made that may not work out well in certain situations. So if we blindly trust vendor claims of no coding experience required or something like that, we're putting ourselves in a precarious position. If our published course isn't displaying correctly for our audience, whose responsibility is it to get it working? Is it the vendors? Some people would actually say yes. Some vendors even charge for support to help people get up and running. But is that the right answer? As an example, Microsoft... They could claim that PowerPoint requires no experience with projector equipment. But then whose fault is it when you're in a conference room and your presentation isn't showing up on the wall? It's the presenter's job to ensure that the AV equipment is in check, just as it's the e-learning developer's role to check that their course or app or whatever they're developing works on all devices that's used by their learning audience, and to be able to tweak things when it's not working. I'm passionate about all this because tweaking code to get things to work right and thoroughly testing it is the responsibility of an e-learning developer, and it's one I take seriously. So when I say things like instructional designers don't necessarily need to code, or when you develop e-learning, you need to have a respect, so to speak, for all of this stuff that goes into it, basically what I'm saying is these are two distinct roles, and anyone that's going to try and do both can't take it all on at the same Like, we can't take into account all of these things at once. No, I I completely agree. I just think a lot of times, especially maybe people newer to the field that have the luxury of having these 
e-learning authoring tools, I don't really think they realize that whole web development, the testing part of it. So I appreciate the fact that you are so passionate about it and you bring that to the forefront. I just think that's another thing that as a community, we might not do a good job of talking about because it's just so simplistic now, right? It's so much easier to build and push stuff out there. And a lot of times people are so pushed with their time that they have to burn and churn and get get stuff in and get stuff out. So I I really like the fact that you have such a strong opinion about it. And I understand your perspective. I recently saw you share at our local ATD chapter about a micro learning app developed for your organization called Albert. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a Cliff Notes version about Albert? So the Cliff Note version of Albert would have to be the butler did it, and Albert is really a giant metaphor for the human condition. I think that's how Cliff Notes work, right? Close. No, it's actually, it's really hard to sum it up quickly because Albert is a somewhat simple solution to a complex problem for an audience that performs a very complex job working with highly specialized and expensive lab equipment. I think we may even be able to dedicate a whole show to Albert down the road. But the buzzwordy summary is that it's a mobile performance support app that serves up curated micro-learning content at the moment of need. So that takes the form of videos, job aids, standard operating procedures, training guides, and other documentation. Some of that is content we're creating. Others is stuff that other people in our organization are creating. And some still is some user-generated stuff we're getting from the field even video. We've had some success with that. That's great. And one thing that I enjoyed about your presentation was the focus on the tasks and the steps that it takes to repair or do a command on these type of machines that you have at your organization. It's a point I've heard from many in the field, including Sam Rogers and Matt Pierce, that video for instructional design doesn't have to be a cinematic production. In fact, recently at Learning Dev Camp, Sam shared this valuable insight. Evergreen content, you should focus on quality for video, but your disposable content, you should focus on the minimum effective dose, a concept that Tim Ferriss shares in his book, The 4-Hour Chef. Based on what I saw of the app at our local ATD chapter, I think that you and your team beautifully balance that just-in-time training with a video that gets the job done. All right, going back to you, I really admire the fact that you strive to be a well-rounded instructional designer, but I'd like to get your thoughts. Should an instructional designer strive to be well-rounded or should they specialize and why do you feel that way? In my experience, as I've shared here today, being well-rounded has paid off. I would say minimally, one should be well-rounded within their main skill set. So I know we've talked off-air about the ATD competency model before. So for an instructional designer, each one of those categories that fills that in could be something they should be able to at least perform with some basic level of proficiency, but their core skill set might be stand-up training, for example. So if that's the case, then they should work on being the best stand-up trainer they can be but also be able to do coaching or or something else that's in that competency model. Yes, I completely agree with that. I think we need to figure out what's best for 
us as instructional designers and it may be appropriate for one person to try to be well-rounded but there there may be times where someone may need to be a specialist in a certain field that way they kind of have their niche in the particular realm no overall i think it just completely depends on the person and the organization So what is some advice that you would give to instructional designers about building up their skills? I was really surprised and encouraged at I recently went to Learning Dev Camp in Salt Lake City, Utah. There were so many people that were new to the field. And when I say new, probably two years or less of experience. And I was really encouraged by that. And I just thought it was great that they've already went to a conference. They're out there networking. They're out there trying to get stuff done. So what are, what's some advice you'd give to those people? Overall, I would just say stay curious. It's definitely a trait that seems to be common among instructional designers is, is some level of curiosity. And stay willing to learn and try new things. And if you don't happen to have a personal learning network, PLN for short, start working on one. And I know Twitter's not everyone's thing, but I definitely highly recommend it because you can follow all the thought leaders and, and different people that are working out loud and sharing sharing valuable resources and, and information. But in addition to that, you can subscribe to blogs and podcasts and all the different organizations that are posting resources and articles like the eLearning Guild and ATD and places like that. If your goal is to create better e-learning, my advice would be don't just download templates and use them. Also dissect them and figure out how they were put together. Maybe even try and recreate them from scratch. The same thing goes for any activities or or interactions you may download for a, a tool like Storyline. Look at how they function. Maybe mess around with the variables that are there or the triggers and see what happens. You'd surprise yourself with how quickly you can kind of pick stuff up, even if Some of it remains a mystery. Even just picking the basics up will help you to tweak some things down the road if you have to, because the last situation you want to put yourself in is you get a course put together and and just in time for a review meeting and you go in and the stakeholders or SMEs ask you to change this very specific thing that you don't know how to change. So having the knowledge to do that kind of stuff up front really goes a long way. Absolutely. And that's really great advice that you gave, Joe. And just to kind of piggyback on that, if you don't have a PLN and you stumbled across us and you're new to the industry, shameless plug, but you can always add Joe and I to your PLN. We're, we would love to help you. We would love to connect you to other people in the field. So don't be afraid to reach out to us on social media. You'll see our handles and the way you can reach us in our show notes. And then we'll also wrap up with them today. With this being the Instructional Redesign Podcast, let's talk about your views on modern instructional design. What is one area of instructional design that you feel most people do well, and what's one area you feel others can improve? I've always been impressed with anyone who has the ability to do stand-up training. The ability to speak in front of people is a skill set all in its own right, but the ability to connect with strangers and adapt the problems and the situations that they may bring into a class and tie that into the content that you're talking about for that day and do, do all that on the spot, that's just so impressive to me. An area of improvement would be evaluation. Some hardly do it at all. Others think just by trying to figure out which level of Kirkpatrick they hit, that's just that's all evaluation is, and they call it a day. I definitely feel like it's more than that, and I feel like it should be something that we're using to uncover opportunities to improve ourselves and refine our process. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you on evaluation. I can't tell you how many different training sessions that I've been to from a professional development standpoint have these terrible small sheets attached to them. How did you like the food? And was the temperature good in the room? And have that big net promoter score down at the bottom. On a scale of 1 to 10, how, how would you rate this training overall? It's not really that value added. I, I can like it or I can hate it, but it depends on did I learn something from it? Is it going to apply to my job? Is it going to help me be better? And you're absolutely right. A lot of times we do kind of drop the ball with the evaluation. And as far as speaking goes, you're absolutely right there too. I'm somebody that I feel pretty comfortable speaking, but after hearing recorded sessions of myself, I knew I could do better. So I actually sought out Toastmasters and I've been a member of Toastmasters now for coming up on six months. So I find it to be a pretty good organization to work on your speaking skills, but there's also informal ways that you can do it that you don't necessarily have to be a part of an organization. You can practice with live streaming video. You can practice just recording little notes to yourself, maybe on your phone, just to listen to the way that you speak about something. There's all kinds of ways to improve, but as long as you're out there trying to improve, that's all that matters. Okay. So what's your biggest pet peeve, Joe, about the expectations of the quote-unquote traditional instructional design role? So from my perspective, with not having a formal background in instructional design, I think the more academic expectations can be problematic. For example, IDs love to cite research to justify what they do, which is fine. I love research as much as the next nerd But the world is changing so rapidly that old research quickly holds less and less relevance, especially if it's anything technology-related. So when I hear people cite research from, like, the late 90s as the sole reason why they made content decisions for something that's going to go online, it drives me crazy. Because think about what online meant in the 90s. Dial-up connections, Windows 95, Netscape Navigator. What were the testing conditions done for all of that research? Does that really hold the same amount of relevance today? Shouldn't we be relying instead on the past 10 to 20 years of user experience research and web design and web development best practices? Isn't that much more relevant and informative than a study that was conducted 20 years ago? Other industries are doing things at a much better pace and to a much better level quality than we ever could on our own. So that includes web design development, like I mentioned, but also marketing and sales, user experience research. We have so much to learn from these various groups if we just kind of come down and and embrace it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And going back to your point about using kind of old research, I think we had a conversation today with uh, Marco Facini, and he brought up an interesting point. He's at a conference right now in London, and it's a VR, AR conference, and they brought up learning styles. And learning styles is still out there as a big part of what we do. But if you actually dig a little bit deeper, there's not a whole lot of research to support the idea of learning styles. So right there is a great example of some information out there that is perpetuated throughout instructional design that many still hold on to because somebody wrote something up about it. 10 or 20 years ago, and people are just still kind of clinging on to that, and it's not necessarily the case anymore. And just to clarify my position, 
I'm not saying that old research has no purpose. Even the 20-year-old stuff that I was kind of harping on, I still use that to inform my work. But at the end of the day, the firsthand knowledge of our audience and their needs and user research we do ourselves, that always trumps all that academic research. Again, I think that's a really good point and kind of shifting the paradigm on the traditional research and focusing again on the user. So another great, great point. All right, we kind of talked about this a little bit, but it seems like a lot of the movers and shakers in learning development are extremely extroverted, and it's constantly the same people on the speaking circuit. What advice would you give to fellow introverted instructional designers in feeling comfortable with sharing their work? Well, my fellow introverts, you know, as I know, that we thoroughly enjoy sitting back and critiquing those who more freely put themselves out there and present their work. We can be very critical, and that can be a huge contributor to why we don't speak up more ourselves, because we're afraid of being analyzed and scrutinized in the same way that we do it to others. So my first advice would be to try and be a little bit more accommodating and understand just how hard it is for somebody to get up and speak in front of people. There's no better way than, of doing that than trying it yourself. You mentioned Toastmasters. That's a wonderful way to do it. Personally, I find the clapping to be a little too much, but it's a supportive environment, so I get it. So I've realized that I'm pretty opinionated about all this stuff, and I don't necessarily want to be up on stage or even necessarily host a podcast, but I really enjoy reading things and listening to podcasts myself, especially L&D-related ones. And at the end of the day, I wasn't hearing the podcast I really wanted to hear, so I decided to basically create one, and I asked you to join me, and here we are. So my advice is if you have something worth sharing, do so in a format that you're comfortable with. It doesn't have to be on a stage at a conference. It can be a smaller venue, or it can be something completely behind the scenes, like writing. For example, I've never seen Kathy Moore appear anywhere. That didn't stop her from being influential to me. Yeah, that's a, definitely a good point about Kathy Moore. I haven't really thought about, but no, I haven't really seen her out on the circuit either. But talk about somebody that's had a big impact in instructional design as a whole. That whole action mapping process that she coined is, is extremely valuable, especially working with difficult SMEs. And I like the fact that you said that you didn't like what was out there in the podcast world, and that's why we kind of took this journey to make this podcast. And I'd also like to point out that I have a face for podcasting. So that was a big reason why I certainly wanted to be part of podcasting. Oh, come on now. All right. So what kinds of topics can our podcast listeners look forward to hearing from Joe Suarez in future episodes? Well, I'm excited to share some cool stuff that I've either worked on or am currently working on. So the Albert app, like we mentioned, we can definitely make an episode out of that. Maybe some microlearning solutions that kind of tie into that. Um, I'm about to start doing some formal user research on our training audience and creating user personas. So that's definitely an experience I'll want to share when that's done. My soapbox is larger than what I've shared today. So I'd say look forward to topics like accessibility, choosing the right authoring tools, video production, and editing. We have a very ambitious list of topics that we'd like to get to, so hopefully many episodes to come where we cover all that and interview some interesting people and get their perspectives as well. 
And you're absolutely right, Joe. You do have a large soapbox, but then when you combine it with my soapbox, it probably takes up half of Columbus. So we have a lot of ideas. We'd love to hear from you. If you have anything that you want to explore or you want us to explore, please share it with us. We would love to get you involved. And lastly, where can people find you on the interwebs to add you to their network? So my home on the interwebs is josephsuarez.com. That's kind of like a hub to all the places I'm at online. It links out to Twitter and LinkedIn and places like that. On Twitter, I'm at joseph underscore Suarez. And again, I'm Kara North. You can find me at karanorth.com or on Twitter at karanorth11. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Instructional Redesign Podcast, stories and conversations about the design of modern learning experiences. Until next time.